Welcome to The Worst Best Sellers, where sometimes we actually read good books. I'm Kate. And I'm Renata. And this is our 2016 book year in review episode. Well, part one of our book year in review episodes, plural. Woo, books! If you're uh, not familiar with the podcast, if for some reason this is the first episode that you're listening to, or maybe you have listened to other ones but skipped previous year in review episodes. Um, or maybe you did listen to previous year in reviews, but then you got amnesia. True. Also, that could have happened. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to cover all the bases. I don't want to make anyone feel excluded from this introduction. <laughs> it's true. We don't want to shame anyone with amnesia. We accept you here. <laughs> Much like quicksand. Oh my God. Hostage. <laughs> If you are listening to this while trapped in quicksand, do not panic. Lay yourself flat and horizontal and do not struggle. And I'll come get you. Yes, much like quicksand and being held hostage, uh, amnesia is something that the media led me to believe would be much more important and common in my life than it actually is. Yes. But if you have amnesia, or any of those other things that I mentioned 20 minutes ago when we started this episode, uh, once a year at the end of the year, we like to revisit actual good books that we've read. For this podcast, obviously, we read pretty crappy things. Sometimes we end up really liking them. But a lot of the times, we're reading a Glenn Beck book, and we can't like it, no matter how hard we try. Um, so this, you know, around the new year, it's good to highlight good books that we've read, good moments in our year, and, you know, this year especially has been pretty garbage, so let's uh, cling to the good parts of it if we can. Yeah. So just to clarify a few things about our list, uh, it is our 2016 list. It's not necessarily things that were published in 2016, it's just whatever we happened to read in 2016. Because, uh, you know, we there are other books. There are older books. And they're still good, you guys. They're still good. <laughs> Some of them. Some of them are still good. <laughs> Another important thing to note is that for the purposes of this list, sometimes the worst book that we've read in that particular category is just the least best book that we've read. In particular, I'm not a librarian. I'm not a bookseller anymore. If I start to read a book and I really don't like it, more often than not, I stop reading it. So my worst books tend to be, this book wasn't as great as the other books that I read, but I still finished it and enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Because I forget if we said this or not. We're not counting anything that we read specifically for the podcast. Yes, this is just our outside podcast reading. And uh, we each will pick a top five best and a top one worst in four different categories, which are children slash middle grade, YA, adult, and comics and graphic novels. And this is part one of our, our two-part episode. And this uh, we will just be talking about the children's books and the young adult books. Uh, so you want to start, Renata, with your top number five, top middle grade and children or and or children's book of 2016? I would love to. And my number five book is The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, the Young Reader's Edition by William Kemkwamba, 
which, uh, as as the Young Readers Edition implies, this is adapted from a full-length uh, adult memoir that he wrote. And it was also adapted into a picture book. So this story is available for every age of person who might want to read it. And I I didn't read the adult one. I think you could probably just read the young young adult one because to me, or just watch his TED Talk even, to me, <laughs> like, the, the quality of the writing was fine, but I was mostly just so inspired by his story. Uh, this is a true story. William Kamkwamba grew up in Malawi. There was a famine. It was, you know, a very poor village with no electricity. He had to drop out of school because his family couldn't afford the school fees. But he went to the library and got a book about how to build windmills. And he just, like, built a windmill out of scraps, basically, and managed to build a working windmill that got electricity to his house. And they never, you know, had had electricity there before. And it's just really, I think I already said inspiring, but it's so inspiring and it's just really moving. And uh, and it has like a, a happy ending. Spoiler, he gets to go to college and become an engineer. And it, I did, I book talk this to a bunch of classes and I would get like really mad at the students because they were like, you know, you, you don't want to, like, act like you think something is interesting when the librarian is talking to you. But I was, like, yelling at them, like, no, it's so inspirational. Like, you cannot just <laughs> sit there and, like, stare blankly. This is, like, you couldn't build a windmill. He built a windmill without even the internet, you guys. <laughs> uh, anyway, so that's why you should read it, so you can yell at children to build windmills. I love yelling at children to build windmills. <laughs> it's one of the things that we spend much of our time doing. <laughs> and that's why nobody comes over to my house anymore, because we're always just sitting around on the porch yelling at children. <laughs> All right. My um, top number five children slash middle grade book this year was actually a children's book. It was a picture book. Uh, and it was How This Book Was Made by Mac Barnett and Adam Rex. Um, I will read basically anything either Mac Barnett or Adam Rex writes. And I particularly love any time that they collaborate. This was a pretty funny book. It was sort of similar to Chloe and the Lion um, in set up if you're familiar with that book where um mac starts taunting adam about how it's so easy to draw pictures so adam quits the book and then mac has to do art himself for the end of it 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 just outlines the creation of this book <laughs> it's pretty funny I, I it's hard to explain why a picture book is funny you know by talking about it but it is like, just trust me, if you've ever read anything by either of these gentlemen, you know that they're hilarious and, you know, go grab this. It's a quick read. It's a picture book. You can borrow my copy. Kate, and I just want to say that I trust yes. you. Thank you. I, I appreciate you. that. All right. Well, I'll move on to my number four book, which is Out of My Mind by Sharon Draper. This is one that was requi required reading for the seventh graders uh, in the town that I moved away from. And so I was a little skeptical of it just because 
I don't know, it was a sign in school, and it's about, um, the concept is it's about a girl with a disability. I forgot the specific condition she has, but she uses a wheelchair and she can't speak, uh, but she gets uh, a board to communicate with, and she's very smart. She just can't talk. So now that she has this board to communicate, she joins the school's scholastic bowl team and is just like killing it. She's the strongest player on the team. Anyway, so I heard all that and I was like, ooh, that sounds like really cheesy though. Like I'm, but kids kept telling me like, oh, you have run out of my mind. That's my favorite book. It's so good. It's so good. And I was like, fine, I'm going to read it just so I can like talk to you guys about it because you clearly all want to talk about it. And it was actually really good. And I also, I shouldn't have been so skeptical because it was by Sharon Draper, who is very good in general. But it just sounded so cheesy. I couldn't help it. But it's, it's actually really good. And I cried a whole bunch at it. And I would recommend it. It It is pretty good. Excellent. Good to know. Good to know that the teens aren't always wrong. Yeah, I mean, sometimes they are, like when they don't think windmills are cool, but <laughs> they're right on this one. <laughs> uh, my number four book is uh, Some Kind of Happiness by Claire Legrand. This was a book that was for one of my book clubs, and I actually did not get to the meeting. I can't remember what happened that day. I missed so many book club meetings this year because, like, I broke my foot and I got an ear infection and these all happened on Mondays and I missed book club, but whatever. Um, it was actually, it was really good. I wish that I had been there to talk about it because I had a lot of feelings. Um, you know, the general conceit of the book is that this girl, Finley, her parents are um, having some problems, so they drop her off with the grandparents and cousins that she's never met to stay with for the summer so that they can work some stuff out. Um, and while she's there, she discovers these woods behind her grandparents' house that resemble this forest kingdom that she writes about in her notebook to escape and all sorts of things happen with that. But the thing that I really loved about it is that she has really terrible anxiety, like actual, like not actual anxiety as an illness. The symptoms of it are very in line with things that I've experienced and things that other people I know with anxiety have experienced. And reading that through the eyes of a child, it just like it felt really real to me. Like it really reminded me of what it was like being a kid and dealing with things like that and not knowing how to articulate it. And, you know, escaping into the internet for me because that was something that I knew how to handle better than real life. And I didn't know how to articulate why that was true at the time. And it just, it really hit home for me on those parts. And they were so real. And with all the other magical realism and other things in the book and problems and things that needed to be worked through and lessons that are learned like that... I just kept thinking about it after I had read it, like going back and thinking like, oh my God, do I know kids I can give this book to who really need it? Because I'm sure there are kids out there who really need it and I want to put it in their hands. So yeah, it was good. That sounds good. Uh, I just noticed that we both have the same number three on our list. So I'll talk a little bit about it. You can talk a little bit more about it. Our collective third best book of the year for children is Ghost by Jason Reynolds 
which uh, Jason Reynolds is a great author. I don't remember if I put one of his books on my best last year, but it was certainly like in my top 10, uh, The Boy in the Black Suit, whether or not I put it in my top five. Anywho, this year, Ghost uh, is the story of a boy called Ghost. His actual name is Castle Crenshaw, which I think is a cooler name than Ghost, honestly, but whatever. (laughs) Um, He is kind of, he struggles a little bit in school. He struggles a little bit socially. uh, He gets into fights. He gets into trouble. And we're in his head and we can see how how hard it is for him to, you know, he, he knows that he should just ignore it or whatever, but you can see how much he wants to stick up for himself, stick up for his family, gets in these fights, uh, whatever. And then he sort of accidentally joins this local cross-country team uh, running, which he, he's very fast, but he has never technically practiced. So he has to learn a lot about form and practicing and you know all those all those cliche things that you learn from joining a sports team he has to learn all of them and uh, I'll, I'll turn it over to Kate now and let her talk some more about ghosts but it's, it's it's really good though it is and so he's on this team with these other kids and it just it is really good it's just and their coach their coach was a former Olympic athlete, Olympic medalist. Oh, God, He won yes. medals. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been a while since I read this. And by yeah. a while, I mean more than two weeks ago. Right. <laughs> no, yeah, he, yeah, and there's a whole thing about that where it was, like, kind of a rumor that he had won an Olympic medal, but he, he didn't know, like, he hadn't confirmed it. And then there was kind of a sad story behind that that he eventually tells Ghost. By the way, yeah. I said I would turn this over to Kate, but I'm taking it back. Because one, just one more thing I wanted to say about it is, like, out of my mind, I think this premise sounds a little bit cheesy, a little bit like, oh, sh- like, sure, like, he joins the sports team and he learns lessons about how to be a better person. Like, I've seen that movie. But it's it's really a lot better than that. It's not what that. you're thinking. Yeah, and it's, it's not what you're thinking. It's more complicated, which I think partly is because we are seeing it from his point of view. So it's not like I feel like those stories a lot of times they're trying to get you to see it from the po- point of view of the person who changes, you know, the poor young promising athlete's life or something like this. But this is really about him and all this other baggage that he has about his family and his father and all of these problems and the way that he acts out because of things that have happened to him. It's just real. it's really good. It's not, you're absolutely, I can, I know that you're thinking like, oh great, like this is like a movie of the week on the Hallmark Channel, but it's really not. It's, it's really good. Yeah. The voice is so strong and so good for ghosts. Like I just love him as a character. Uh, I, know I know I already said it, but that just like that, is just the fact that we have that we see it from him is really what makes this into like from like another like kid on the wrong side of the track sports book into something really excellent and different. I don't like sports books. I don't read sports books. Yeah, fuck this sports. Really good. We like books. <laughs> yeah. Um also, I will, th- like, I know this is one, it was a National Book Award finalist. I know it's one that's on a lot of people's Newberry shortlists. 
So it it's not just us. Yeah. Other people like it too, so you should read it. Yeah. Um, all right, I guess it's technically my turn, even though I would stole half of Kate's turn. Uh, <laughs> my number two book is... I probably, I think I was like the last person left on Earth who hadn't read this already, but I'll mention it just in case. Uh, it is Where the Mountain Meets the Moon by Grace Lynn. This it's so good. It's so good. Uh, I listened to it on audiobook, and the audiobook is really great. Just in case you haven't read this. I know it's like super popular. It's always on everybody's list. If you haven't read it, it's a like loosely connected set of stories that are based on different Chinese folk tales and the way they all fit together is so beautiful and like their overarching frame narrative it's it's just like so well put together but then every individual story is so compelling what's the girl's name in it oh Jesus I read it like 900 years ago (laughs) I'll google it for you like, her voice is so good, and she's so clever, and it's just, I don't know what to tell you. If you haven't read it yet, and you haven't, like, been, oh, it's only from 2010. It's not as old as I thought it was. I guess it's just been, like, sort of on my radar for a really long time. Uh, and there is a sequel. Minley. What? Minley. Yes, Minley. And it, um, this is another thing that sounds, like, so cliche. It's, like, a really beautiful story about the power of stories. <laughs> um, but stories are great, and so is this one. And uh, I think I already said the audiobook is really good, but it is. And the way that it's so episodic makes it work really well for me as an audiobook, uh, because it's it's kind of like just a set of little podcasts all strung together. <laughs> all right. Um, my number two, we're on number two, right? Yes. My yep. number two book is... Unusual Chickens for the Exceptional Poultry Farmer by Kelly Jones, which I believe is Renata's number one book. That's right, it is. So oh, we should have done little... this in opposite order. Whatever. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I'm going to talk a little <laughs> bit about it and then let her take over. The, the story of the book is this girl, Sophie, has moved with her parents from L.A. to this farm that they've inherited And, you know, they're not farm people first off, but second off, basically, they're like the only brown people around. And that that like is obviously something that she feels and is very different from where she was before. She also doesn't know anything about chickens and doesn't care about chickens. All this. Oh, it's really good. My favorite part about it, though is that it's not, it's told, it's like a mixed media sort of thing where there's like, Sophie's writing letters and then like, she's also like learning how to take care of chickens and doing all of this other stuff that, that is built into the book. So you're not just reading like a straight up narrative, like you're reading her letters, you're reading her lessons on chicken farming, you're reading... Like her All mom's other stuff. to-do lists. Yes. I, her mom's to-do lists were really funny, I thought. They were really um. great. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was a really, when I first, I'll say one more thing and then I'll let Renata take over it. Uh, take it over. When I first, I had this list of middle grade books that people had suggested that I read and this was on it and I looked at it and I was like, this looks stupid. But then I heard from someone that it was like a mixed media sort of thing, which I'm really into. And I mean, I, I guess we've said that about like every book that we've talked about so far. It <laughs> sounded books- weird, but actually it was really good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
at Renata Talk now. Yeah, it, yeah, this book, it sounds like you might not like it, but then actually you would like it. We <laughs> we should blurb these books. <laughs> Every single one of them on the front, just like, I thought it sounded dumb, but it was cool. <laughs> dash, dash, Renata. <laughs> uh, okay, so I don't think that, I mean, I guess you can guess from the title, I don't think Kate said that the chickens have superpowers, but they do. Oh, no. <laughs> I didn't get into that at all. <laughs> that's that's what makes them unusual. Um, I agree with everything Kate said. I want to throw out one more thing that I really liked about this book. And I, uh, Kate said, you know, that this family is, is one of the only brown families in town. They're Sophie's half white, half Latina, I believe. Definitely half Latina. Yes. Anyway. Um, so she, um, it, it just is really good about sort of subtly introducing like microaggressions into it in a way that if a kid is reading this, they might never have heard it put that way before, or it just like might make them understand in a way that isn't like didactic, but it's just like, oh, that would happen. And, like, she would feel this way about it, probably. Like, one of my favorite things is that the librarian is really nice to her because at first the librarian thought that Sophie's family was, like, migrant workers instead of the people who had inherited and owned the farm. And so she was really embarrassed with that. Now she goes out of her way to be really nice to Sophie. And (laughs) Sophie just kind of, like, makes a note of that. And she doesn't feel, like, especially bad about it, but she's just like, oh, yeah, that happened. And I'm like, oh, my God, like... Yeah, like a librarian would do that and then feel really bad about it. Like I don't know, I really like that. And it's Yeah, no, it's 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 woven in in a really interesting way because it's not like like it's it's definitely a thing that comes up in the book and it's definitely a big part of the book, but it's also at the same time not at all. Like obviously these chickens and all of these things going on and this other farmer who's trying to get the chickens and all this other stuff is the bigger issue at hand. Mm-hmm. But there are all of these little racial things seated in so that it's a very natural part of the story without and there's not like a I don't think there's anything wrong with reading or writing books that are specifically written to draw attention to particular issues. I don't I don't necessarily like the word issue books, but I don't think there's anything wrong with issue books. But no. this is not. It's just another part. It is a book about a girl who happens to be half Latina and has all this crazy stuff happening to her, which is I, I like to see more of that. I think we do need books that explicitly draw the subject to race in a way to make people confront it. But I also think we just need a lot of books where people who just happen to be, you know, X identity are going through wacky hijinks. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Latina and I've got chickens with superpowers. <laughs> uh, so speaking of, uh, we like to read little excerpts of our number one favorite, number one least favorite, just to give you a little taste of them. And so I'm going to read you a little bit from Unusual Chickens for the Exceptional Poultry Farmer by Kelly Jones. And as we mentioned, this is told in um, letters and other things. And so this is a letter, as you will soon hear. Dear Great Uncle Jim, who is who owned the farm before them and is dead now. You know that chicken I told you about? It can use the force. 
I would worry that you wouldn't believe me, but I think it used to be yours, so you must know already. Besides, you're dead. First of all, the little chicken house wasn't where I left it last night. It's up on four stumps now, and it's stuck on tight. I thought Dad moved it. Mom's working. She hasn't been outside in days. And that worried me, because I haven't told them a chicken showed up yet. But then I remembered he'd gone to town right after breakfast. Then I realized the door was shut and latched, and I know I unlatched it and left it open last night. That didn't make me very happy. I started looking around for Henrietta, and when I came back around the big junk pile, the door was open. I almost started running then. Only dumb kids in movies wait around for evil strangers to pick them off. But what about Henrietta? That's what I'm calling her. I hope that's okay. I couldn't leave her behind if there was stranger danger around. There was a noise from in the little house, kind of a thump, and I froze. Henrietta stuck her head out the door and hopped down on the ground, balking and cackling and having a huge old chicken conversation. I tried to shush her as quietly as I could and kept my eyes wide open so I could try and grab her if anything moved at all. She walked over to her jam jar and glared at me and balked some more. And then I guess she got tired of asking nicely. She got real quiet, so I stared at her. And then she glared at the jam jar, which I suddenly realized had tipped over so there was no more water for her to drink. And, well, I'm just going to say it. The jam jar floated off the ground, sailed over, and landed at my feet. As soon as it landed, she squawked and went back to pecking at the dandelions and the blackberry bushes. I don't know what I was thinking, but when Henrietta looked up and glared at me, I grabbed the jam jar and ran for the hose. After I filled it up, I stared at it for a while, in case it was a magic jam jar, but I couldn't make it move at all. I guess I might as well tell you I was kind of afraid to go back. I've read a lot of books about kids who find magic stuff. A lot of scary things happen to them, and I don't even know how to take care of regular chickens yet let alone chickens with superpowers. I might have freaked out a bit, and I wrote to that company you probably got her from. I told them to come get her. But I couldn't leave her out there without any water or anything. Right, so I'll stop there, but it's really funny. It's really sweet. It's got magic chickens in it. You should read it. You should. Okay, um, my number one book that I read this year for children was George by Alex Gino, which I am the last person on the planet to read it. I understand that, um, but I did and wept like a small child through most of it, yeah. <laughs> starting on like the second page <laughs> and then just really didn't stop. So, uh, George is in, well, I guess I'll explain that as I'm talking. George is a book about <laughs> a girl. Sorry. I thought you were just going to stop at George is a book. And I was George like, is a book. <laughs> you should read it. The Great. End. Does it, uh, <laughs> blur that on the question. cover. <laughs> is it better than it sounds like it would be? <laughs> would you say? George is a book about a transgender girl whose birth name is George, and it's sort of her 
not necessarily her discovery that she's trans because she already knows by the start of the book. The book refers to her with female pronouns and the name George until the last chapter. So that's what I'm going to do when I'm talking about it. Um, she already knows she's a girl, but she's not she's not sure what to do with that information yet. She's afraid to tell her family. She's afraid of being bullied at school. She hasn't even told her best friend. Um, and it's just like in small degrees, her coming to terms with this and getting the strength to go forward and do something about it. The most of the action revolves around there's a school play and it's based on Charlotte's web and, she really wants to be Charlotte, but of course, because she's male presenting, her teachers at school think that it's a joke when she goes up to them and, and tries to audition for Charlotte and, and tell her like, no, you could be Wilbur, you could be one of the other boys, or you can be on the crew, but you can't be Charlotte, that role has to go to a girl. Um, and she's, she's very hurt by that. Um, she's being bullied by a boy who used to be one of her friends when they were younger and this other mean boy who moved to town. She's a teenage brother who's just very teenage brothery <laughs> and isn't particularly mean or awful, but just is a teenage boy um, and a single mother who's very harried and who knows that something's going on, but is so concerned with making sure that George has a good life, that she's afraid to confront it. Not necessarily because she's like homophobic or transphobic or anything, but because she knows that George's life will be hard if this is true about her. And she wants to avoid that if possible. Um, but it's just really great. Like, I, I try not to give away everything that happens in the books when I talk about them on these episodes because I want you to want to go out and read them and find out what happened. But I will tell you, cause I know it's always dicey when you're reading books about queer characters. This has the happiest, sweetest ending you can imagine. Don't be afraid to read it. If you're afraid it's going to be sad. It's not, it is so happy and hopeful and wonderful. And like, I was crying sad tears in the first couple pages. And by the end I was crying happy tears. Cause I was so happy for George and her ability to to embrace this and live her life the way she wants to and it's great you should read it yay um i'm gonna read a little bit about it um this is from when george's brother scott when george comes out to her brother scott and it's after she's been in a fight at school with the the boy who's been bullying her What's up with mom? He asked from behind a plate piled high with ham, turkey, and chicken topped with two slices of pizza. She never takes us out to Arnie's on a weekday unless she's upset about something. Yeah, well... George looked over at mom, who was still picking out lettuce for her salad. I kind of got into a fight at school. Scott's head shot up in surprise and his brow grew heavy. When I got into a fight at school, I got grounded. How did you work Arnie's out of it? I kind of also told her something. It must have been big. Mom's staring at the beats like a zombie. It was. Did you tell her you were gay? Scott twisted his fork into a pile of mashed potatoes. You know I'm okay with that, right? Before Dad left, he made me promise to take care of you. He said you were like that. 
I'm not gay, George said. Why did everyone think she was gay? Whatever, I don't care. My friend Matt is gay. It's no big deal. But it was a big deal. I told her I think I'm a girl. Oh. That was all Scott said at first. Oh. Scott chewed, swallowed, and took another bite of pizza. The background noise of the restaurant throbbed in George's ears. She wished Scott would say something, even if it was mean. Oh. Scott took a bite of turkey. Oh. Scott began to nod slowly. He turned to George, whose stomach had jumped with each O, and was now nearly in her throat. That's more than just being gay. No wonder she's freaking out. I know. Scott put down his fork. So do you? Do I what? Think you're a girl? Yes. George was surprised at how easy that question was to answer. Oh. Scott ripped up off a hunk of roll with his teeth and chewed thoughtfully. Uh, and I'm going to skip a little bit. Mom comes back, then she leaves again. Scott had gnawed silently on a chicken wing while Mom ate her salad, but once she got up and approached the appetizer bar, he dropped the bone onto his plate. I know about your magazines, he said. Mom told you? No, I found them this weekend. I knew Mom was upset about something, and then I saw the bag sitting on her bed. Dude, I thought you had porn or something in there, so I took a peek. You know, just to find out what kind of stuff my little brother was into. So I figured you were gay. But I didn't think you were like that. Scott popped a corn fritter into his mouth. So do you, like, want to... He made a gesture with two fingers like a pair of scissors. Go all the way? George squeezed her legs together. Maybe someday, she said. Weird, but it kind of makes sense. No offense, but you don't make a very good boy. I know. <sighs> so I'll stop there, but I really liked that. I really liked that Scott, who was like such a teenage boy, is confronted with this and is just really cool with it. And even as the book continues, he's just really cool with it still, which was nice. <laughs> Aww. Anyway, this book's really good. I had a lot of feelings. The end. That's on brand. <laughs> um, if you, we can link to this. Ingrid, aka Magpie Librarian, and children on Twitter rather had that as like an all school read at her school, and they did a author visit from Alex Gino, and the blog post she wrote about it and like how into it the kids were and like how moved they were by it is just. If you want to, like, cry some more, I would recommend that as well. Great. I definitely don't cry enough. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just good to make sure your tear ducts aren't blocked up. Yup. Uh, okay, so now that's, that's enough good books for now. We do have to get back to our main brand, talk about some bad ones. Uh, so my worst book of the year for children, and... This series, nobody cares what I think about this series. Like, kids love it, and they're going to keep loving it. But I read um, I Survived the Battle of Gettysburg, 1863, by Lauren Tarshish. Tarshish? I don't know. Anyway, this series is super popular among, like, elementary schoolers-ish. Um, and they're all just about natural disasters or war or like tragedies of some sort but a child who's somehow involved survives and tells this survival story and they're again very popular very compelling 
it doesn't matter. You know, they're kind of review proof. Like if a kid's into it, they're going to read all of them. And it doesn't matter if I'm like, oh, this. But uh, so I read two of them this year. I read this one and I read the uh, San Francisco earthquake one. And this Battle of Gettysburg one, I'm it just bewildered me because the whole thing is like, is it a child? And that sort of makes sense when it's like, an earthquake or the Titanic, you know, there were children there and they survived it and that's fine. But this is so convoluted because it's like a runaway slave from the South, like was running away and befriended these Northern soldiers and was just like tagging along with them and ended up at the battle of Gettysburg and then like got shot while hanging out there, but survived spoiler. But it's just like, this is so it's such a stretch, and it's so, like, why is this... Why did you do it this way? Um, and then, again, you know, this is for children, and it's semi-educational, but the, the writing is just pretty clunky. Uh, so I'm gonna read you just a little bit of that. The men were always talking about their families and their sweethearts, their hometowns, and their plans for getting back home. And of course, they talked about the war. It turned out what Clem had said was right. People in the North did think slavery was evil. It had been illegal in the North for years. Now President Lincoln wanted to end slavery everywhere in America. Except the people in the South didn't care what President Lincoln thought. They wanted to keep their slaves. Eleven Southern states were already trying to break away from the United States to start their own country. A country with slavery. Here's what Thomas had figured out. If the North won the war, the states would stay together and slavery would be gone forever. And if the South won? Thomas tried not to think about that. But listening to the men each night, it was hard not to worry. The North had more soldiers and better weapons and uniforms. But the rebel fighters were fierce even though some fought barefoot with rickety guns that could barely shoot. They had a ferocious battle cry, the rebel yell, that they screamed out when they were charging. It sounds like you're being attacked by a pack of wild beasts, Henry had told him. The sound will chill you right to your bones. And now Thomas could see how worried the men looked as they packed up the camp. Thomas overheard Les and Homer talking behind supply wagons. He didn't mean to spy, but they were talking in loud voices. This is going to be another Fredericksburg, Lester said. I can feel it. Don't say that, Les. Don't even think about it, Homer said. Later, Thomas asked Henry about what he'd heard. Henry didn't answer right away. Fredericksburg was a big battle we fought, he said, back in December. What happened there? Henry looked into his knapsack, rummaging around, as though he might find the answer folded up with his blanket. But then he dropped his pack and sat down. He patted the grass next to him, and Thomas sat too. Henry's face got a faraway look. And then, in a low voice, Henry told the story of that day. So, yeah, it, you know, it's a, like an oversimplification. I can't be, like, too mad at it when we have, like, books about happy slaves being published. Like, at least we're taking a strong anti-slavery stance here, but it's it's fine. I, it's fine. Kids love it. I just wouldn't necessarily recommend adults go out and read this for fun. 
Yeah. Um, all right. So my worst book that I read this year was The Billionaire's Curse by Richard Newsom. What, and that that wasn't a romance novel? That's not about Christian Grey? <laughs> no, it should be, though. Uh, no, it shouldn't. No, it shouldn't. Um, so I don't even know where this book came from. I was trying to read through um, all the books that I have in my house that I haven't read yet. And this was on the pile I think maybe I got it when I was a bookseller based on the date of publish and the fact that it's an advanced copy. But in general, it's the story of this kid, Gerald, who is 12 and he's just like a normal kid who doesn't care about anything important. And his great aunt dies. And once she dies... Like, everyone she's ever met shows up for the reading of the will, and everyone expects to get something, and they're all given envelopes that say what they've inherited, and most of the envelopes are empty, and then people inherit, like, a spoon, or, like, toast, and stupid shit like that, and Gerald inherits her entire, like, $20 billion estate, and all of her houses and like an island that she owns and a yacht and all this stuff and he's stoked to have all of this money but then um discovers hidden in the house is a letter to him from his aunt that basically says like hey i've been murdered and because you've accepted my inheritance you have to figure out who did it have fun so he like That's goes on. That's not this... legally binding. <laughs> so he he and his two friends go on this journey. Um, she's like a big museum donor, and there's like these mysteries involving these magical artifacts, and of course, like adults who are on the trail to try and get them as well. It's the first book in a trilogy, so it ends in a semi cliffhanger, and it was fine. It was fine. It is very clearly like, well, everyone's writing trilogies about kids doing magic and stuff, so I'm going to write one too, sort of. I don't know. See, I'm saying that, but at the same time, like, it felt very derivative the entire time, but now I can't think of exactly what it felt derivative from. I mean, it sounds... A little Westing game-ish. Westing game-ish, and then, um... But obviously nothing in the world is as good as the Westing game, so don't even try. Like, chasing Vermeer-ish, and... Yeah. It's, it was just fine. It wasn't great. I... It's not actively harmful. It was just kind of boring. And, uh... You know, I finished it. Instead of putting it down, so... Couldn't have been too terrible. Mm -hmm. um, but I, like, one of the things that I found unbelievable, like, all the voices for the characters were really all over the place. Um, sometimes the kids said stuff that I was like, kids don't talk that way. And a lot of times adults said stuff, and I was like, adults really don't talk that way. Like, <laughs> pick... Hashtag not all adults. <laughs> um, so one example of that is in the letter that uh, Aunt Geraldine leaves for Gerald. 
that where it, it just like at times I'm like, yes, definitely an old woman wrote this. And then other times I'm like, an old woman did not write this letter. So uh, here we go. Hello, Gerald. I hope this isn't too weird for you. A letter from beyond the grave. By now, you are my heir and worth a good deal of money. I hope you don't mind. I have a favor to ask. I'm told you are a bright chap. I know we never met, but your mother kept me up to date on your achievements and whatnot in her letters. So I expect you figured out that I was murdered and I want you to find out who did it. It's a long story and I've tried to explain it as best I can, but I'm afraid it has all been a bit of a rush. But the harsh fact is that if you're reading this, then I am dead. Murdered dead. You'll meet a lot of people in the next few days. This is all written in handwriting font and it's kind of difficult to make out. Mm. Um, many of whom will claim that part wasn't part of the letter. That was an interjection from me. This is also <laughs> an interjection from me and not part of the letter. <laughs> many of whom will claim to have been my friend. I advise you to trust no one, not even the police. Because, Gerald, I have been murdered for a reason. The same reason people will now want to get hold of you. Maybe even murder you. It's all to do with this blasted diamond, of course. You need to find Professor McEldery at the museum. He'll point you in the right direction. I have felt I have left you in charge of the Archer estate because in time you will learn to use its resources wisely. In time you will know what to do or not to do as the case may be. Now do an old woman a favor and find my killer and do it quickly because rest assured they are looking for you. And that, I mean, part of that was stilted because I couldn't read the font, but a lot of it is stilted because that's how it's written. Short declarative sentences that aren't even full sentences. And yeah, like a lot of the adults talk like that. I don't know. It's weird. Well, she had to write fast because she was going to get murdered. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was fine. I guess if you find the book and... There are worse things to read if you're trapped on a desert island. If you're stuck in quicksand and it's the only thing you can reach. (laughs) You might as well read it as long as it doesn't cause you to physically flail about and struggle. Yeah. Then you'll die. It's kind of it's kind of chill. It's kind of boring. So you won't like feel the need to move around a lot. So. (laughs) Worst bestsellers brought to you by Steaks and Cakes and the Quicksand Awareness Society. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Should we move on and talk about some YA books that we liked and a few we didn't? I kind of still want to talk about Quicksand, but probably that's not, this is not the time for that. All right. Well, you know what? Maybe we should do a special episode of just like our top five quicksands. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, guys. We're book podcasters. (laughs) But we also know a lot about quicksand. (laughs) And you would, too, if you're a self-respecting child who grew up in the 80s and 90s. Uh, also, if you have not listened to John Mulaney's stand-up bit about quicksand, I don't know what you're doing with yourself. <laughs> anyway, Kate, why don't you tell us your fifth most favorite YA book of the year? 
All right, I will do that. Um, my number five YA book that I read this year was Bone Gap by Laura Ruby. I think this is another one that I was like the last person on the planet to read. Uh, but I'm glad that I did get around to it because it was really good. Um, I listened to this as an audiobook. Uh, if you are on our Patreon and you get our Patreon newsletter, then you've probably heard me mention this, but I've had a lot of trouble concentrating this year um, for both like depression related reasons and just other related reasons. I can't read on the train anymore. It makes me sick. So I've really started listening to audiobooks for the first time. I used to listen to them on road trips, but not with any regularity. But now I have basically every book that I've read from like August to present was via audiobook with a few middle grade exceptions. But yeah, so I listened to this on audiobook and it was just, it's another like magical realism sort of thing. Um, so Bone Gap starts sort of in the middle of a story. This very beautiful girl named Rosa, who was kind of the light of the town, she had sort of mysteriously appeared in this small town of Bone Gap. Everyone really loved her, even though she was an outsider, and she was kidnapped. And the only person who saw it happen was this boy, Finn, who Rosa was living with him and his brother. She That was kind of the farm that she had stumbled into when she stumbled into the town. And nobody can, nobody believes Finn when he tells them that she was kidnapped and explains who kidnapped her and what he saw. They all just assume that she got tired of Bone Cap and moved on with her life and went away. And this is very frustrating to Finn. His brother, Sean, who was in love with Rosa in particular, has a really terrible relationship with him after this. They're on their own. Their mother left them a while back to marry someone else. And so they're kind of just like stuck with each other. And now they don't even have Rosa anymore. And meanwhile, um, there's a girl in town named Petey who um, lives on a bee farm, I guess, what do you, wherever beehives are, bee honey is harvested or something. I, I would call it a bee farm. A bee but farm. I don't I don't know as much about bees as I know about quicksand though. <laughs> so take it with a grain of salt. Uh, she is kind of known as the ugliest girl in town that she has a nice body, but you know, her face is really ugly and he has a huge crush on her and over the course of the summer weird things keep happening while they're falling in love with each other. We get bits of Rosa's past, and we also get bits of Rosa in this mysterious place with the man who kidnapped her. And I, this is one of those ones that's really hard to explain without giving a lot away, to the point where when I started it, I had no idea what it was about, and what it was about was nothing that I imagined it would be about. But there's a lot of magic, there's a lot of stuff that is mentioned in the beginning that comes back to be important later. There's a lot of really interesting romances and also just interesting relationships between friends and between family members. And everyone is great and I love them. And I have a lot of feelings about this book too. And I don't want to give anything away. So I'm going to stop talking about it now. I've already talked for too long. 
it was i think did it win the prince or was it i think it won the prince last year um maybe if it didn't win it was an honor anyway that just just to back you up it was i read it last year and i liked it too and so did people on the prince committee Apparently. So that's that's three <laughs> equally important opinions that you listeners yes. should consider. All right. Well, my fifth favorite book of the year is The Lair of Dreams by Libba Bray, which is the sequel to The Diviners by Libba Bray, which I know Kate is going to talk about. So I won't say too much, but it's, uh, you know, 1920s paranormal mystery love story scare like scary but funny like just a lot going on uh i will say um the diviners was scarier than i thought it would be like i thought it would be more like a mystery but it's it's like pretty scary and as i've mentioned all the time on this podcast i am a wussy scaredy baby and i don't like things that are scary but by the time i figured out how scary it was i was just like really uh attached to the characters and really into it and so i I had to keep going to find out what happened even though it was too scary uh, and so The Lair of Dreams is a sequel, and I liked it more than The Diviners because it is less scary to me, um, although it's certainly still uh, still a mystery, still very compelling, a lot going on, a lot of a lot more character development with all these characters that I loved, and uh, it's, it's just pretty cool. Check it out. You should. I, I assume. I haven't listened to it yet, but it's on my list. Um, as as you will hear two books from now when I start to talk about the first yeah. book in the series. Um, but first... Sorry for, sorry for giving spoilers for your list, Kate. That's okay. <laughs> uh, but first, my number four young adult book that I read this year was I'll Give You the Sun by Jandy Nelson. This book was the town reads pick for my town i don't know if your towns do that where they choose like one book and it's like the whole town is encouraged to get copies of it and read it and come to they have like all events for a couple months um all about it and i think they had a skype session with the author and different um conversations about different aspects of the book and they had a whole art gallery up about it, which will make sense when I explain what the book is about. But essentially, it's told from the point of view of two, of a brother and a sister who are twins. So yeah, they're when they're 13, when they're in middle school, getting ready to get ready for high school, uh, Jude and Noah are very close, but they're drifting apart. Jude is becoming like very popular and hanging out with like all the cool kids and older kids and going to parties and stuff and kind of not caring about art as much anymore. Noah is very quiet, very isolated, is still super into art and very gifted at it and thinks the way that he thinks in art is so fascinating from the parts that we get from his point of view. Um, but he's very upset that they're drifting apart. And as all of these things are happening to pull them further apart, they're both trying to get into this arts high school. They don't want to go to public school anymore. 
So they're putting together, they're getting ready to go to this arts high school. Their mother is also, she's very encouraging of their artistic sides um, in a way that their father isn't, and in particular is very close with Noah as he blossoms as an artist, and uh, she tragically dies at the end of the summer when they're 13, or at the end of the summer when they're 14, right before they're getting ready to go into high school, she she dies. And they become super fucked up about it in and go immediately in opposite directions. And suddenly Noah doesn't care about art anymore. And like, he's cool and, you know, is jockey and has jockey friends. And Jude has become like a stereotypical dresses in all black artist type. Um, there was only one slot to get into the arts high school, and we find out that Noah um, rigged it so that Jude would get in, even though he knew he was the more gifted artist because he was so moved by the art she did create, and she's just floundering. She's not doing very well. She can't recreate the things that got her into the program in the first place. It's just, and there are boys who come into both of their lives and change. The, oh, it's it's sad, but it's really good. It was a book that was really hard to read in that I really liked it, but I kept having to put it down because I it was too much to read all at once. Like, I had to take breaks. But yeah, like, again, I'm trying not to give everything about it away, but it was really beautiful when I first read it, I was sure it was going to be the number one book that I read this year. And that tells you a lot about the other three books and how much I must have liked them in order to knock this down to this slot. But it is really, really beautiful and wonderful, and you should read it. I, again, will say I also love that book, and I also think that won The Prince the year before last year? Not confident, but I think that it did win the prince. Yes, it did win the prince. Yeah. I mean, I was totally confident that it won the prince. <laughs> cool. Yeah, that's a great book. I also really loved her first book. I like you, Dandy Nelson. And here's what other book I like. I'm putting it number four on my list. Scarlet Epstein Hates It Here by Anna Breslau. Uh, it's There's been a, a lot of books recently-ish dealing with online fandom in various ways and as you might have noticed kate and i are both people who are active in internet fandoms of varying sorts and so i'm very interested in this trend and it's you can kind of tell when authors like actually themselves are involved with fandom or when they're just like oh i heard about that that seems like a good thing to put in my book and i feel like Anna Breslau gets it. And this Scarlett Epstein is this uh, teenage girl who is in the online fandom for a show that sounds basically like Teen Wolf. And uh, her show ends. And she still wants to be friends with some of her best fandom friends. But they don't have a ton in common aside from this Teen Wolf-like show and so instead of instead of writing fan fiction that's like carrying on the show exactly she starts writing fan fiction that is like 
basically she's taking kids who go to her high school and then imagining them to be at the Teen Wolf high This show is not called Teen Wolf, but we're just going with that. <laughs> she's putting them at the Teen Wolf school, school and then writing about their adventures and sending that to her friends. And it's getting really popular on the internet. And it's it's not that thinly disguised. And so you can, I'm sure, guess where this is going. And it's about... um. You know, a boy she has a crush on and her best friend and you can see where it's going. Um, so there's a lot about that. And I just like I love how funny it is and how it does show this kind of like weirdness of the fandom friendship, especially when she meets up with one of her friends online and they have discussions about how you can present yourself online in one way. But in real life, you're this other way. Um there's another thing that I think can happen a lot in books and can be a little cliche, but I thought it worked really well in this, which is she is friends with this wise elderly neighbor who is hilarious and has like smokes a lot of medical marijuana and is just like kind of cooler than Scarlet, who is a nerd. And it's a really fun friendship. And it's just a it's just a funny book. If you like fandom, if you like Teen Wolf, probably. I've never actually seen Teen Wolf. I'm sorry <laughs> to say, uh, I it's, it's pretty good. Yeah, I also read this and I did really like it. Um, partially because it did get the fandom stuff so right. There were a couple glaring mistakes, but the majority of it, like the vast majority of it, this the person who wrote this either was in fandom or had a very close friend who was and told her in detail what goes on. On the internet. <laughs> yep. All right. My number three? Number three? My Mine's number three uh, best book that I read this year is, as Renata alluded to, The Diviners by Libba Bray. I, Renata kept telling me to read this. Everyone kept telling me to read this book, and I 100% understand why they did. And I think I bought it in, like, a Kindle sale and then didn't read it for a really long time. And then when we were going, me and Mar my friend Margaret were driving from Boston to Jersey for Thanksgiving. And I had her look through my Kindle books to pick something to listen to. Because um, if you're not aware of this, I only became aware of it once I started listening to audiobooks this summer. If you own the Kindle book version of something you can usually get the Audible version of it for much cheaper. So like an audiobook that might normally be $32, if you own the Kindle version of the book, they'll, you know, maybe four or five bucks for the audio as well, which is great because I own a lot of Kindle books <laughs> that Love I have daily read. deals. Yep. So um, Margaret picked this out and we put it on and we were just riveted. We, like, were yelling <laughs> while we were driving. We were gasping, <laughs> begging the protagonist to make good choices, which she didn't. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, but it was, it was really good. It did suffer a little bit from... It is very obviously the first book in the series... And it sets up a lot of plots and characters and gets really deep into them and then drops them. 
And I can tell it's because she's planning on picking those threads up in the next books and needed to establish them because it would make sense to have all of these characters, you know, being established and all of their stories being established at the same time. But it did leave me feeling a little bit like I was disappointed that we didn't get more from certain characters after the end. Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, like Renata said, it's sort of like a mystery set in the 20s. The one of the main characters is Evie, and um, she's a party girl in her small town in Ohio. And she has this what she calls a party trick, where when she touches an object and concentrates on it, she can get information, learn the secrets of the person who owns it, and sort of learn the history of it through touch. And after that gets her into trouble at a party, her parents send her to live with her bachelor uncle in New York, and he runs a museum of magic and paranormal artifacts. And through that, she starts to learn that there are people who are colloquially called diviners who have gifts similar to hers. And there's a series of murders happening in New York that have an occult-ish feel to them. And her uncle is asked to consult on the murders. And they find out that there were these similar murders that happened like 50 years beforehand. And that there's a sequence of murders. And at the end of the sequence, something really bad is going to happen. And so they need to stop the person committing the murders before they get to that point. And there's a ton of great characters. They're all so different and so interesting. And they have these cool powers. It is kind of creepy. I necessarily wouldn't call it scary, although there were definitely very creepy parts. But I also have a much higher tolerance for scary than Renata does. I'm not saying the whole thing was scary per se, but like the end, like I couldn't listen to the audiobook anymore for the last few chapters because it was too scary. <laughs> like with the house, like come on, yeah, Kate, you're telling I, I me guess, that wasn't I scary. Guess. I mean, Fuck you. I guess it, it was, was scary. Creepy. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> this podcast um, is over. <laughs> and I'll also say that the narrator, January Lavoie. I think is her name, was fantastic. She's one of the best audiobook narrators I've ever heard. For the first time ever after listening to that, I looked up what other books she narrated so that I could put on my list to get them specifically for her narration. Yeah, she didn't really... Especially there's, like, all this 20s slang that she, like... Because I feel like with a lesser narrator, it could get a little annoying, but it wasn't. And there were so many characters, because um, it's it's this book is mainly focused on a couple of the characters in the ensemble, but it does, like I said, set up an ensemble for further books. So there's, I can think of at least six or seven characters off the top of my head who have major speaking roles, and every character had a different voice, and it never felt cheesy or weird, like she inhabited it. It was great. So great. All right. Well, my number three is not actually The Diviners by Libba Bray. I just couldn't stop talking about it. My <laughs> number three is Still Life with Tornado by A.S. King. I love A.S. King. She is an amazing writer. I've loved all of her books. They are, like, they're always, like, different from each other, but there's always some kind of, like, you know what? I'm not up to the task of describing A.S. King. I don't know. There's, like, magical realism and, like, 
futuristic sometimes, but not always. Like, whatever. I don't know how to describe Ace King's View. I can't do it. This book is very beautiful. It's funny. It's sad. It's surprising. If you're not hip to A.S. King, get on it. That's all I got. Oh, that, is that it? I don't know. I don't know what else to say about this book, Kate. Okay. All right. It's I can't, fine. I don't... I... Okay. Th- yeah. I'm... No, I am done. I am done. A.S. King in general is great. This is your newest book. It's great. It, you should read it. Bye. Okay. I will. <laughs> so my number two book is really two books, but I'm just going to talk about the first one, uh, which is Six of Crows by Lee Bardugo. Um, I listened to both books in rapid succession. I didn't realize that the second one was coming out, so I'm, I actually pretty much lucked out. I got the first one in an Audible sale because people told me that I would like it, and wow, they were right. I can't imagine why they would think that I would write this heist book about teenagers who are a found family who are very sarcastic, and also there's lots of women, including a fat girl and queer characters. That doesn't sound like anything I would like at all. But it was great. Uh, that, I mean, that's basically just the overview that I gave you. Um, Lee Bardugo, I guess, also wrote the Grisha trilogy, which is more of a traditional fantasy trilogy. I haven't read those. I've just read these. But it takes place in a fantasy world that is vaguely inspired by different countries and stuff in our world. And particularly in Ketterdam, which is the fantasy version of Amsterdam, basically, which is kind of like a merchant town Switzerland area for all of these countries that are all at various wars with each other. And uh, one of the big figures in the seedy underworld there is a teenager named Kaz Brecker, who is hired by a merchant to find a scientist who has been kidnapped. Uh, He has come up with a drug that enhances the powers of Grisha, who are these magical wielding, essentially, people with different powers. There's different classes of them that exist in this world. And in the wrong hands, this could mean, like, war and lots of really horrible things for Grisha and for people who don't like Grisha and all sorts of things. So they they hire this kid, have him get together a crew, promise him a gazillion dollars if he can find the scientist and bring him back to Ketterdam. And in order to do that, he needs to break into this unbreakable prison in this fake Nordic country that no one has ever entered or escaped from before. So he gets together a crew and they're all like sarcastic and they all have secrets. And it's basically like the Fast and the Furious. Yes, or Ocean's Eleven, but with teenagers in a fantasy world. And they're all hilarious and adorable. I really loved both of the books. I was totally pulled in. I loved the characters. Even the character who I didn't like by the end of the first book, by about six-eighths through, or three-quarters through the first book, I was like, okay, no, you're my child now, too. I love you, too. Nothing bad can happen to you. I didn't like you before, but I love you now. You've redeemed yourself. Um... But yeah, it was really great. I was saying to Renata in the car, I think, or someone, that part of part of putting together these lists is 
deciding whether you want to go with best or favorite, because technically, probably Bone Gap or I'll Give You the Sun were in a technical, from a technical point of view, better books than the Six of Crows books or the Diviners. But I loved these books so much. <laughs> I was so excited to read them. Um, and I still love them. And I still think about the characters all the time. And I hope they're happy because I love them. Yeah. Th- I I tend to lean more toward favorite over best just because, yes. you know, I'm not a like big book blogger. I haven't read like everything that came out this year. I'm not necessarily like in a position to be like, oh, this had the highest technical quality of any book. I and also like I don't want to. I just want to tell you like this is going to be especially clear, I think, when I looked at my list and how I had arranged them for our comic section, I was like, this is almost offensive, but I just <laughs> love this book so much more than this other book that is technically a lot better. But you'll hear about that later. <laughs> yeah. Like, my top three books were chosen because they and they switched, I would say the top three, The Diviner, Six of Crows, and my top book, which I'll get to, I went back and forth for like a week over what order the three of them were going to be in because they're all books that I just fucking loved so much. That I couldn't stop thinking about them or talking about them. And yeah, like, that's how I felt about Six of Crows. Like, I made all my friends read it and then kept asking them if they had read it yet and if they were done yet. And that actually reminds me that I have to ask Becca if she finished it while she was away for Christmas so we Mm -hmm. can talk about the end of the second book. But yeah, like, I love this and you should read it. I did read it, Kate, and I did love it. I didn't put it on my list because I knew you were going to talk about it and I wanted to save room for some other books. Um, I, so I'll just weasel again into Kate's section and say I did love these two books and that's kind of an accomplishment for me because if you haven't noticed or don't remember it's about me, I am super grumpy about fantasy books and like whenever they're set in a made-up country, I'm like, I don't like this. Like I don't like having to learn made-up words. I'm like such a grump about it but I think partly I like this because it was so like as Kate was saying like in my brain I just translated it to like oh they're in Amsterdam they're going to Iceland it's fine like I get it this guy's from China or something it's fine uh if if you actually like fantasy worlds and if you like made up countries you don't have to do that that's fine (laughs) I'm just gonna say I'm also gonna drop in here because near the end of of the episode what better place to talk about why we chose certain books um there are books that i read this year both middle grade and teen books that renata talked about last year that even though i read them i specifically left them off the lists even if i liked them more than certain other books because we had already talked about them and i figured we'd should probably talk about something else instead. Like, I'd rather promote another book than say, like, remember last year when all Renata could talk about was how great this book was? Well, now all I'm going to talk about is how great it is. So, yeah. I didn't choose books if I knew, for the most part, that we had already talked about them. Yeah, because there are as many shitty books as there are in the world. There's also a lot of good ones, and we want to shine our spotlight around a little bit. Yeah. And... So that, I guess, brings me to my number two book of the year, uh, which is Symphony for the City of the Dead by M.T. Anderson. This book 
is it was amazing. Like it was a tough call for me between the number two and number one spot. And I mean, this is one again where we go between best and favorite because I'm in such awe of the technical skill of this, where this is a nonfiction true story about the com- composer Dmitry Shostakovich. Kovic, I don't know how to say Russian names. I'm sorry. Did not listen to this one in audio. Um, I don't know anything about classical music. I'm ex- I'm extremely ignorant. I'll just tell you that. I'm a very ignorant person. I don't know about things. And you should still trust my opinion because this is America. But it's, uh, it's about this composer. And uh, he is Russian, of course. And it was about his life in Leningrad during World War II and they were under siege and it was a very like grim and brutal time and he was a very famous composer and so he had a little bit of like propaganda value and so sometimes he would get some special treatment and he was sort of trying like it it goes into like, what kinds of art could get you killed and what kinds of art would help you out and how it was sort of arbitrary sometimes. <sighs> it's so hard to put... See, this is why M.T. Anderson is so good because, like, he can explain this all in a way that is, like, you cannot put it down. It's so compelling and it's so, it's a topic that it maybe could sound a little bit boring, but M.T. Anderson, by the way, like, he has written fiction. He wrote Feed, which is one of my favorite, like, YA sci-fi novels. He's written Whales on Stilts, which is an extremely funny book. I'm kind of mad at how good he is at literally everything, it seems like. Like, every one of his books is a very different genre, and somehow he's good at all of them. And so, uh, he's... This book is really good, even if you think it sounds boring it's not you should read it and learn some stuff and feel some feelings yay feelings (laughs) my number one young adult book that i read this year was shadow shaper by daniel jose older which was so good it was so good you guys i still and part of what i think popped this up to number one as i said i was going back and forth between the top three is that he released a novella in this universe a couple weeks ago that i read and it reminded me how much i love this world and i love all of these characters it is this great fantasy novel um set in modern day brooklyn um focusing on an afro-latino girl named sierra who is an artist. Uh, She's painting a mural in her neighborhood and various things happen. And she essentially discovers that her grandfather was part of a secret society of people who used art to channel spirits and to communicate with spirits via art, that they could literally physically put spirits into their art and make it come to life. And that someone is stalking all of the remaining members of this secret religion and killing them. And with it, the art of this shadow shaping, as it's called, is dying with them. And the whole neighborhood and the whole community is at stake. So she bands together with her friends and with a librarian that she meets and with like the cute 
nerdy artist boy who she sort of has a little crush on who's also a shadow shaper and they try to figure out what's going on and how to stop it and learn how to use their powers and it's so good it's so good on so many levels it's the characters are so good the voices are so good the relationships are so good the magic is so interesting and different and new and good and Meanwhile, like, it's all a subtle or not so subtle at times on purpose kind of metaphor for gentrification and how much white people suck as a whole, which is great. And I just love it. <laughs> it's really good. I, I read it also. Everything Kate says is true. I'll co-sign. It's just like, I, I love all of these characters. I'm, I was so excited to hear that he's writing more books in this universe because I love it and I love everyone and they're all so great and I just want them to be happy, <laughs> which is a theme. <laughs> <laughs> I just love all these characters and I want them to be happy. Yeah. All right. My Oh, wait, one... I have to read oh. from the book. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> I okay, forgot do it. too. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit from about the first third of the book when Robbie, who is the um, moody, nerdy artist boy, who is also a shadow shaper, uh, is taking Sierra out to a club because he promised that he would um, show her a little bit more about his art and a little bit more about learning how to shadow shape. Something moved across the room toward her. It was tall. It was dark. It was almost invisible against the foggy haze of the bar. Sierra's eyes shot open, but there was nothing there. What was... You saw one. Robbie smiled at her. One what, man? I knew you could. I knew from way back. Anyway, okay, look at the wall again. Robbie, this is no kind of explanation if all I am is more confused and freaked out at the end of it. You realize that, right? You said you wouldn't freak out. Now look at the wall. Sierra made a face at him, but he'd closed his eyes, his forehead only a few inches from the painted skeleton foot. He raised his left hand and touched the wall with his right. Sierra squinted and then almost toppled over. The tall shadow charged across the club, toward them, dove straight at Robbie, and then seemed to vanish into his chest. Robbie barely moved, his hands still on the wall. Sierra's eyes went to his painting. She couldn't say exactly what, but something was definitely happening to the mural. It was different, brighter, and the painted skeleton trembled. Robbie! Shh! Sierra watched in awe as the skeleton's painted skull turned ever so slightly, as if to regard her and Robbie. It was smiling, but skulls were always smiling, those damn death grins, so that didn't mean anything. Then it started tapping its foot. She could see it beating in time with the music. Sierra opened her mouth to gasp, but fought it back. She'd promised not to freak out. And anyway, how different was this from the strange changes she'd been seeing in the murals all week? Something about it made some wild kind of sense. You run off? Robbie's eyes were still closed. His hands still touched the wall. She shook her head, then remembered he couldn't see her. No, I'm here. 
More tall, dark shadows moved across the club. Sierra could sense them flickering along the edges of her eyes, but she couldn't look away from the mural. One by one, the tall shadows approached Robbie and then vanished into him. The painting brightened and then seemed to awaken, each mermaid and monster flexing and turning ever so slightly, as if rising from an epic nap. I just... I just... Sierra whispered. Robbie was smiling when he opened his eyes. Shadow shaping. The shadows come to me. When they're just in shadow form, they can't do much in the living world, just whisper and rush around mostly. Some can do other stuff, but it takes a lot of their energy. But when I put their spirits into the painting, a form, they take on way more powers. Can other people see it, though? No one else was looking up, and no one gasped. The murals were bursting to life, and everyone around her was like, la-dee-da, another day at the club. Not most of them, no. Why? Why not? It's like I said the other night. They're not looking. Sierra just stared at the churning wall. But it's real, Robbie finished. Anyway, you want to dance? So I'll end there, even though I could read like this whole chapter because it's so great because all the paintings come to life and it's wonderful and I love it. And this book is so good. Read this book. <laughs> yeah, it's good. But do you know what else is good? Is my favorite book of the year, Lucy and Lynn by Alice Pung. This is an Australian realistic YA story. Most like blurbs of it compare it to Mean Girls. And I love Mean Girls. And I it's not wrong to compare it to Mean Girls, but this book is a lot better than Mean Girls. And I think it is fundamentally trying to do something different than Mean Girls. And I think it's it's a good hook to compare it to Mean Girls, but I think it ultimately does this book a disservice. So forget I even said Mean Girls, even though I said it a hundred times just now. Um, but it's the story of a girl named Lucy who is Asian-Australian, and she gets a diversity scholarship to this... They don't call it that, but they call it something basically that, um, to this very prestigious private school. And... She is trying to fit in and basically she's just at first just trying to keep her head down and get through it because she knows if she can graduate from this school, then it's going to help her get into college and, you know, just have a have a better life than right now. Like her mom does basically um, garment work out of the out of their garage at home um, and her dad, I think think works in a factory for and they basically you know they have kind of like blue collar jobs and they're working and you know and they're very proud of lucy but also they don't really understand like the stresses and everything that she's going through um and she's mostly describing everything that's going on in these letters to lynn and then eventually and to be honest now i don't remember how exactly this happens. She ends up being sort of adopted by the, like, you know, by the mean girls, by the most popular clique in school. And she, I don't, I don't want to give too much away. And this is also another one that definitely could sound cliche. Like she kind of stands up to the mean girls and she learns about herself and she, you know, blah, 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 blah. 
and they, and they learn about her struggle, but also it's a lot more complicated than that. It's a lot more subtle than that. And I'm going to read you just a little excerpt. One of the, one of the mean girls whose name is Amber, or no, um, Amber is this is Chelsea's mother has been assigned to be kind of a tutor to Lucy, basically, or like a mentor figure through the school. And so she has asked Lucy to teach her how to make spring rolls for this party. And so all the mean girls are there, and Lucy has been there teaching Chelsea's mom how to make spring rolls, and and here we go. Oh, and also the other mean girls' moms are there. So, we get to meet your little Pygmalion project at last, Brody's mom, Mrs. Newberry, said to Mrs. Leslie. I had no idea what a Pygmalion was, but it had the word pig in it, so I was sure it was not flattering. She turned to me. How do you do, Diane's fair lady? She extended her hand, heavy with rings, expecting me to shake it. So I did. Diane, she is just as darling as you said she would be, proclaimed Chelsea's mom. Do you know who clamored to be Lucy's mentor at the start of the year, Gloria? Mrs. Leslie asked Brody's mom. Who? Gracie Gladrock's daughter. Oh my god! Deliver us from evil and forgive us our trespasses, muttered Chelsea's mom, snorting with laughter. Before I arrived, Mrs. Leslie had cooked some prawns and stir-fried some beef with sesame seeds, garlic, and oyster sauce. Now she set everything out like a production line, and we were ready to roll. I had no idea how Brody's mother was going to do anything, because she had long fingernails with white tips. So I got her to dip the rice paper into the plate of boiling water. I figured it would not hurt her fingers as much as it would any of ours. As I showed her how it was done, she remarked, Well, would you look at those dexterous Asian fingers? So fast. Yes, Asians do seem to have more nimble fingers, said Mrs. Leslie. When I was in Shuzu, she pronounced it Shuzu, trying to make it sound more exotic, I suppose, I visited a silk factory, and there were girls around Lucy's age, all with such small and delicate hands embroidering silks. The owner told me that it was a 4,000-year-old tradition, that sort of handicraft. How delightful, exclaimed Mrs. White. We've never been to China. You know which other people have nimble fingers, asked Chelsea? South Americans. Oh? Mrs. Leslie loves stories about different cultures. Yeah, when we, went to, when we went to Venezuela two years ago, they stole my camera. Remember that, Mum? Those filthy, unibrowed pickpockets? Chelsea's mother's laughter stopped like the last sputters from a felty tap. Oh, yeah, I remember you telling us about that, Chelsea, piped Amber, and how that hot waiter, Javier, was actually so gay on his day off, wearing a black tank and cut-off jeans. Don't you remember, Mum? Chelsea insisted, and how you said... Well, I have to say, this is a real treat, Lucy, said her mother, cutting her off. All right, so, yeah, that's kind of the shit Lucy has to deal with. And she is just so great, and I'm just, I just love Lucy, and I'm, I'm so proud of her, even though she is not <laughs> a real person. And it, it's a very sharp and funny and very insightful book, and I strongly recommend it. All right, good to know. Let's uh, flip it back to books that are not very good and not necessarily recommended. 
garbage. <laughs> the worst teen book that I read this year was A Spy in the House by Y.S. Lee. To go against what I said at the top of the show, this is a book that I only finished because it was a book, a book club book. I would have put this down if I wasn't reading it for a book club. It is theoretically about like a young girl thief who's taken off the streets by a school for girls where they train her up to be a secretary or a domestic. But then when she reaches like 16 years old, they tell her that really the school actually is a school for spies, for girl spies, because girl spies are not suspected by anyone because why would a girl be a spy? Girls are all dumb and they don't know how to read. And they kind of initiate her into the spy order by sending her on her first mission. On paper, it sounded amazing. It sounded like the Allie Carter books or any other girl spy boarding school book, which I would be super into. In practice, I had to force myself to finish this. The characters were just not dumb. The romance was stupid. The love interests were stupid. I just hated everyone. I hated everyone in this book. And it was a drag. And I wanted to like it so much. And I was so mad that I didn't like it. So that's that. I guess. Oh, I'm going to read from it. I know how this podcast works. Yeah, totally. So this is one of, like, the many, many dumb parts in this book that maybe say, you're all so dumb was that our main character, Mary, is actually the, like, junior spy on this mission. There is someone who's supposed to be getting all of this information, and Mary is just supposed to be kind of picking up what she can and being there to help out if needed. But of course, she decides that things aren't happening excitingly enough for her and takes it all into her own hands. So she's supposed to be the lady's maid to this girl who's having a party, And at the party, sneaks away to break into an office so that she can get some information, even though she explicitly was told not to do this. So here's some of that. Mary tried the door handle. Locked, naturally. She extracted a sturdy hairpin from her bun and crimped it deftly. Picking locks had always been one of her favorite parts of her old job. Looking out for intruders while simultaneously listening to the tumblers of the lock required immense focus. During her training sessions at the agency last month, she'd been pleased and surprised to find the old knowledge flooding back. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the talents she'd acquired as a young thief were still there. She had struggled more with new skills, like code cracking. Now, however, she found that her nerves were unused to the pressure after all these years of ladylike respectability, and her hands shook in an alarming fashion. She stopped and forced herself to draw five deep breaths in succession. If she didn't calm herself, she'd only scratch the lock, lose her hairpin, and have to go back to the drawing room empty-handed. It was a sobering thought that helped to steady her fingers. Her second attempt was much better. Almost immediately, she could feel the inside of the mortise lock, visualize the tenons revolving in their neat patterns. A brief burble of laughter from down the hall made her freeze, but its source didn't appear, and she continued her work. The last lever clicked into place, and she grinned. So satisfying. The handle was well-oiled. A glance inside confirmed that the room was empty, and she slipped inside, closing the door silently behind her. 
The heavy velvet curtains were open, and a blend of moonlight and garden torches half-lit the room. She wouldn't need the stub of a candle tucked in her pocket. She turned to survey the office. To her right was Thorhold's desk, square and massive and completely bare. Behind the desk sat a pair of filing cabinets, a tall wardrobe, and a drinks table with several well-filled decanters and a set of glasses. To her left was a series of glass-fronted bookcases filled with leather-bound books with gold-embossed spines. The windows were against the back wall. She frowned and chewed her lip. She couldn't expect a miraculous discovery. Indeed, she told herself sternly, it was quite likely that Thorold kept all his trade-related documents at his warehouse. But she had to begin here in order to rule out the obvious. No, you didn't have to begin anywhere because this literally wasn't your job. You're making trouble for yourself. Sorry. I'm going to stop reading because I'm bored. Because <laughs> this book was boring. Well, that is a shame. Um. All right. Well, my worst book of the year was... It wasn't boring. It was offensive and bad and and disappointing because I was rooting for it. Uh, it's uh, called Kill the Boy Band by Goldie Moldovsky. And this is one that got a lot of buzz. People are talking about it. I really wanted to like it because I think it is a concept with potential. And uh, it's another fandom novel. Uh, what is it? Scarlet Epstein Hates It Here, I think, is a book that did it right. This is one that did not do it right. And it's about these four girls who are all fans of this boy band called the Ruperts. And they kidnap one of, which is a, every member of the band is named Rupert. And they kidnapped one of the Ruperts. And he ends up dead, but they aren't sure, like, what happened. And they have to kind of, like, figure it out and make sure, you know, they're okay and, like, not implicated. Blah, blah, blah. And it and it's sort of a satire, and parts of it are really funny. Like, for example, I think the idea of a boy band where they're all named Rupert is kind of funny. And, like, they were formed um, off of, like, a show, like, you know, like the X Factor or whatever. But it was called So You Don't Think British People Have Talent. And I like that. Like, I don't know. That's kind of a funny joke. But then, and then the... The narration, like, it's being told by one of the girls who never gives her name, but she likes 80s movies, so she always gives her name as a different heroine from an 80s movie, which, whatever, it's fine. But, so we don't even know her name, and she is kind of like, and people always underestimate girls who like boy bands, but we're smarter than we seem, and blah, and, like, I can get behind that. But then she is so hateful toward her friends, which there's, like, a Latina girl who's very sassy, and you shouldn't fuck with her. She's really tough. Like, okay. And there's an Asian girl who is fat, and that's, like, her main characteristic is, like, how fat she is. And it's just, like, really fatphobic and gross. And... And there's a fourth girl, and I don't remember anything about her, so that's a good sign. Anyway, so again, seems like a good premise, very terribly executed, and I'm going to read you a little bit about Apple, the fat Asian girl who is so fat. This is as good a place as any to give you some stats on Apple and her career as a Rupert's fangirl. Favorite member of the Rupert's? Rupert Pierpont. Number of times she's seen the Rupert's in person? 18. Number of times she's met, this includes getting anything from a selfie to a hug, all slash a member of the Rupert's eight. Apple came from the outrageous ode to wealth and vanity that was Greenwich, Connecticut. 
She'd grown up there ever since her parents, an el- elderly, magnanimous couple, adopted her from an orphanage in Beijing when she was one year old. As the story goes, Apple's parents were browsing the orphanage when they st- spotted the chubbiest baby they'd ever seen eating a piece of fruit out of the trash. I'll give you one guess, which fruit? Living all the way in Connecticut never stopped Apple from seeing the Ruperts in New York. Actually, she'd been to every performance of the Ruperts in New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Once, she even trekked as far as Montreal. Aaron and... Oh, Aaron is the other girl. Aaron and I met Apple at one of the Rupert shows. It was an outdoor performance for the Today Show, and Apple had pitched a neon orange tent as big as a circus in Rockefeller Center four days prior to the concert so that she could be in the front row. It got her on the news. A reporter interviewed her in front of her tent, asking, Why are you so devoted to this band? Because, she said, I'm a stripper for life. Excuse me? The clueless news person said, Strepor. It's what the Rupert's fans call themselves. It's Rupert spelled backward. The news person stared, blinked, smiled, and concluded the interview by asking a passerby how he felt about the growing population of strippers. I'm all for strippers, the man said. The clip was a mini viral sensation. Anyway, Aaron and I had convinced our moms to let us leave leave for the city at 2 in the morning the day of the Today Show concert so we could get a good place in line. When I say convinced, I mean that Aaron told her mom that she was going, and I just waited for my mom to leave for her overnight shift. By the time we got to Rockefeller Center, there must have been at least a thousand people there already. And there, at the front of the line, was that huge James and the Giant Peach of a tent. It was a lighthouse beacon shining the way to the promised land. Erin grabbed my hand. Anytime she did that, it felt like she was pumping life into me. Because if you think about it, the only reason to grab your friend's hand is when something big is about to happen. At first it was scary, but eventually I just started letting her take me. It was almost always worth it. So we waded through the sea of girls all around us on a quest to reach the tent in the middle of Rockefeller Center. Apple was all alone in her tent, and only too happy to share it with fellow streppers. Inside, the walls were wallpapered with posters of Rupert P.'s face, which would have normally been offensive, but I ignored it because it was warm, we were in the front of the line, and the tent got restaurant delivery service. Because she's fat. Ugh. Okay, anyway, so... Man, somebody else please write a good novel about boy band fandom, because I think... I think somebody could do a really good job, but it's not this one. Also, it's so weird to me that they're like, she lives in Connecticut, but she somehow got to all the New York shows. Connecticut is on the Metro North. Like, literally the commuter train goes from Connecticut to New York City. Many people who live in Connecticut work in New York City every day. It's like less than an hour's train ride. Yeah, that, that's not even in, like, my top ten problems with this book, but yes, also that. <laughs> uh, all right, so that's that's the end of our, our lists for YA and children's books of 2016. We made it. Yay. Thank you for being patient with us as we dealt with illness and injury. 
Oh yeah, I forgot. We should have maybe said that at the beginning of the podcast. Well, <laughs> it's it's a special Easter egg for our true fans who listened till the end because they don't care about our illness and injury. They just want us to be okay. Oh uh, yeah, thanks guys. Thanks for keeping us on your vision boards. We uh, like yeah. you more than all those people who stopped listening at the beginning. Yeah, fuck those people. Yeah, if you didn't see on social media or blog or whatever, we have been grappling with illness and injury and and quicksand, but we're fine yes. now. Kind of. I don't know. We're alive and we're back talking about books. And we're prepared. If quicksand pops up, we are prepared. So ready. We've been preparing our whole lives. <laughs> I can't wait to listen to this episode and be like, what is wrong with us? <laughs> Why are we talking about quicksand so much? <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. So if you made it this far and you didn't know, uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Worst Bestseller with no S. You can also like us on Facebook where we're the Worst Bestseller spelled normally. Um, you can also... Subscribe to us on Stitcher, iTunes, or Google Play. If you do that, please rate and review us. Uh, when you rate and review us, it pops us up in the charts and makes it easier for new people to find us. If you don't rate and review us, we know where you live, and we know how to send quicksand after you. <laughs> do we know that? I, well, I Probably. We'll find out. We'll find out. <laughs> Watch some old cartoons. It'll be fine. <laughs> um, also, um... Please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash worstbestsellers, where uh, for a small recurring monthly donation, you can have access to some cool stuff that we do just for patrons. And also you'll be funding us to do cool things like record extra episodes and buy new equipment and pay our editor for her time, which we really appreciate. We love all of our Patreon patrons. You guys are so great. Thank you so much. Just the best. We would 100% save any one of you if you fell into quicksand. We would. Uh, what else? Uh, you can you can follow me personally on Twitter, where I'm at Renata Snacks. You could learn some quicksand facts for sure if you follow me. You can follow me personally on Twitter at 14across, where you could learn what other uh, major fears my childhood has prepared me for, such as being held hostage or being lost at sea on a desert island. Mm -hmm. uh, you can, well, oh yeah, visit our website, worstbestsellers.com. It's got convenient links to all these other things that we just said. Just click them, click all the links. And uh, I think that's it. Uh, we'll be back. We'll be back uh, with part two of our best of 2016, which is uh, books for adults and comics and graphic novels. Get hype! Very exciting. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. I don't know if my microphone is picking this up, but Duarte is sitting like behind my head and he is snoring the tiniest kitty snores and it's so precious.